following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. You are on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. You're with Scotty, you're with Zena, and you're now with Ian. We're joined on the dog and bone by Mr. Ian McIntyre. How are you, Ian? Yeah, I'm good. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, well, Ian, who is Ian? Ian is a radical historian, a community radio broadcaster, an author with books ranging from science fiction to blockading to the industrial workers of the world. And uh, once we get through Ian, we'll be talking about the Commons Social Change Library, um, which exists to make activism smarter and stronger. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You've been doing this stuff for a long time. And as Utah Phillips once said, how did you get to be like that? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a difficult one. Um, well, I guess for me... Um Grew up in a household where, uh, you know, my parents were unionists and they, particularly my mum, there was a lot of sort of talk about different social issues and that sort of stuff. And I guess I somehow latched onto that and sort of took that forward. And, um, yeah, so from the late 80s, I, I got involved with environmental and um, unemployed anti-racism and other sort of activism. And, um, yeah, over the years I sort of became... I always had an interest in, in history. And then uh, over my, the sort of years of being involved with different campaigns and so forth, I got more and more interested um, in that kind of historical aspect and, I suppose, interested in educating myself and also sharing with others um, kind of lessons of the past but also just just movements from the past. Um, you know, to show that, that we're kind of what we're up to today is part of a kind of long-term tradition um, and also to sort of show that, you know, I suppose in those difficult times and particularly, um, you know, I'm originally from Perth and, you know, it's not the smallest city but, but certainly in the late 80s and the early 90s it had a very small kind of left Um yeah, that even even if you're living in a place that sort of feels quite isolated or, you know, you, you don't have some kind of mass movement to tap into, um, that, you know, you can still do things and be effective and, and have fun. That's always been a big part of um, the stuff I've written about is sort of picking up on that kind of rebellious and, and fun side because, um, yeah, I mean, the work of activism, it can't, it's not all... Uh, yeah. giggles, I suppose, <laughs> but you've got to have some along the way. <laughs> That's right. But I guess a, a smaller sort of town means that you learn to sort of make your own fun as well, don't you? Yeah. And I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, look, you know, operating in smaller places can, can have lots of advantages too in terms of, you know, you can have an outsized impact with, with fewer people and you can, you know, it can often bring together, I guess, people politically or whatever who might not work so closely together normally. If they're in a bigger place, they might just kind of cluster around people they've got more in common with. So it sort of forces you to look 
more outwards. So that was my experience. And, mm. um, you know, I mean, I'm sure people in small towns have had bitter out, <laughs> falling <laughs> outs and so forth, but certainly some of the first groups I was involved with in Western Australia, um, you know, we were very good at sort of working through differences within groups, yeah, you know, yeah, nice. because we knew that if we didn't do that, then then there wouldn't be any kind of, um, you know, presence around certain issues. <laughs> That's right. So, so you yeah, had, had to compromise. and, we're and that it. Was, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, we're it. And yeah. that, was a, that was a good thing. So, <clears throat> yeah, that kind of fed into the history stuff in terms of also trying to show that, um, you know, often social change comes from the fringes, you know, and comes from small groups of people who, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact uh, quote from Gandhi about, you know, first they laugh at you and all that sort of thing and then they fear you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that there was this sort of history all along the way, even even in the darkest times. Um, and even though you, you can understand... Um, you know, you have to understand different movements within their historical context or whatever, but there was always, you know, even in Australia during, you know, the, the very darkest days of the white Australia policy and so forth, there, there were kind of radicals out there who were, for instance, speaking against that, even, even though that was, you know, yeah, totally yeah. Um, kind of commonplace and dominant. Yeah, and, and just people getting to know that there was a history. I mean, for example, it's November 4th today, and in, in 1923 in Melbourne on November 4th, special constables were sworn in as gangs yes. were looting the city because there was a wildcat strike by police. And in 2006, all over the country, more than 80,000 people took part in Walk Against Warming protests. Do these little events sound familiar to you, Ian? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're one day off November the 5th, which is one of our ultimate activism protests with Guy Fawkes attempting to blow up British Parliament. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's been a lot of people who are very dissatisfied with the status quo who'd like to express that dissatisfaction through activism. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us about the, uh, the Seeds of Dissent uh, celebrating Radical Australia calendars? Yeah, so th- that was a project in the in the 2000s um, where, yeah, basically through through different bits of research that I was doing, you know, I was just thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a, a calendar with all these um, dates in Australia, sort of progressive, radical history. So, that, you know, first thing I guess everyone looks at is their birthday or whatever. <laughs> so, but... Um, so, yeah, originally it was a project I did um, at uh, Community Radio 3CR, which is Melbourne's sort of progressive um, community radio station. And, yeah, the first run of it was just a sort of, you know, run off on the, on the photocopier at 3CR and there unfortunately wasn't any room to write anything in the, <laughs> in the calendar <laughs> because all, all the dates took up all the space. And then um, uh, Bree McGilligan, who was, um, you know, sort of special projects officer and stuff at the station at the time, said, look, why don't we do this kind of a fancier version? So, um, and that's where uh, designer and uh, muralist 
Tom Civil came in and we sort of put a team together to do those calendars. Um, so, yeah, we did those for about five or six years as a, as a um, fundraiser for 3CR. And, yeah, my challenge was to sort of come up with a, with a date in uh, Radical History for, for every day of the year, which, um, you know, involved going through a lot of uh, old dusty communist and other newspapers, <laughs> <laughs> sort of sifting for the gold. And, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then, um, yeah, I guess I've continued that while I did a couple of diaries um, in more recent years, again, sort of fundraisers for, for 3CR, but also for um, the Rainforest Information Centre. And, um, yeah, then since I've started working with the Commons, one of the things I do is uh, usually once a week we have a, a social media post about a particular date in history with a nice photo. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of the history of digging up the dates. <laughs> Hmm, yeah. <laughs> so I guess that would have led on to your sort of research career because you've been uh, are you an actual sort of qualified historian or Yeah, I did a did a PhD at one point. So, yeah, I guess the the getting more in depth with it also sort of happened through doing the how to Make Trouble and Influence People series of zines <laughs> um, in the 90s where I kind of collected sort of stories, anecdotes, short histories about, um, yeah, again, Australian radical history. Um, and then sort of out of those, I started writing sort of longer pieces. And, yeah, at some point um, a friend said, uh, you know, why don't you combine this with with doing, um, you know, an academic research. So I did a master's um, thesis on the uh, familiar to Canberra, the ADEX 91 anti-arms fair protest. Um, and then out of that, I also did a, an oral history book about that and a few other things. And then my, I ended up doing a PhD on um, history of environmental blockading comparing um, how, I guess, blockading kind of became a, a strategic option for, for defending um, <clears throat> biodiverse places. So, you know, sort of looking at uh, mainly the sort of late 70s through the 80s and comparing uh, Australia, the US and Canada uh, and looking at sort of yeah, basically how it went from not really being a thing that people thought about <laughs> to being like, okay, this place is going to get damned or this place is going to get knocked down. Well, one of our options is to is to go and blockade. And so I traced the history of, I guess, the early years of blockading in those three countries and kind of made various comparisons about them and so forth. And um, so that was my PhD. And, yes, I, I do some... Um, kind of academic work like a lot of people in the field. It's all very casualised. Um, so, yeah, I do some tutoring. Um, I have done lecturing in the past uh, and some some research work. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of... That in the Commons keeps me quite busy. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, 
So you've been a forest defender, you've been on community radio, you've been in a whole lot of bands as well. You know, these sort of <laughs> punk, punky bands? Or? Um, sort of mixture. Um, some of them, um, yeah, punk sort of stuff. Some of it more kind of indie rock, I guess. Uh, some of it um, sort of 70s moogie electronic soundtracks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, like just always loved playing music. Unfortunately, it's something that sort of dropped off a bit in recent years, but um, started playing in the late 80s, and I guess I came out of that, um, I guess, influenced by, by punk, but also by the sort of independent spirit of the era, you know, of the sort of thing of, you know, if you love something, go and have a go. So, you know, I'm not, um, yeah, I, I never did any music lessons other than a very short period as a kid or whatever. I just sort of picked up the bass and <laughs> started, started playing in it, bands yeah. <laughs> and, and um, you know, it was very involved with the kind of do-it-yourself um, music stuff in the 90s and, and did a zine and um, some you know, help run a sort of distro and stuff where we were trying to kind of provide a bit of an alternative to the to I suppose mainstream labels and so forth. Um, you know, I'm not sure how successful we were, but you know, had a, had a lot of fun doing that. And um, yeah, I'm still a huge music fan, um, but uh, yeah, don't don't can't quite fit in playing much these days. <laughs> yeah, you get busy, don't you? <laughs> uh, I guess the only other thing I wanted to touch on was you got a very long uh, association with squatting. You, you did the the 3CR's Squatters and Unwaged Workers Airwaves show, or the Sewer show, and then um, after that you, you were curating the Australian Museum of Squatting. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's been quite some years since I did any squatting myself, but, yeah, I was, I was um, squatting in um, Melbourne, in the 90s and also um, I lived overseas for a while so I was squatting in London I, I lived on an anti-road pro, uh, squatted anti-road protest for a while in London and sort of there was uh, a full street that was kind of occupied that the um, uh, basically they were going to knock down for a, for a expressway or a tollway or whatever and uh, the locals and other people Squatted that for uh, held up the project for about a year. Oh, that's um, good effort. <clears throat> yeah, and then I got interested in the fact that there was quite a history of of this in Australia of um, you know different freeway projects or tollway projects during the seventies and eighties, and I guess um, you know the fact that they'd sort of compulsory purchase um, properties and then leave them empty for anything up to decades kind of <laughs> opened up the opportunity for, for people to squat. So, you know, for instance, in Sydney, there were, there were loads of squats in the inner city which were basically along the lines of, of these freeways that some got built and some never got built. Um, so, yeah, that was something I, I was involved with and then more, more sort of documenting and, um, yeah, there's quite an interesting history in Australia. I mean... Um, you know, and again, we're not talking sort of here about the landed gentry <laughs> when we're talking about squatters. We're talking about um, people who take over and use, uh, I guess, uh, wasted or uh, disused properties and uh, put them to good use for 
for housing or for for um, other purposes. And um, yeah, I got quite interested in the fact that um, after World War Two, um, there were lots of military camps and empty houses squatted because uh, squat there was a huge, um, I guess, not totally dissimilar to today, but there was a huge um, housing crisis at the end of the war. And eventually that was uh, resolved through uh, public housing, which I think a lot of people are aware of. But initially, um, when the war ended, there was sort of a period of a few years where there was this stopgap. And, you know, I've um, heard stories from family of you know, basically, you know, some of the kids having to live on the veranda or or somebody, you know, um, uncle having to sort of, you know, live out um, on a, you know, live out the back of the house with, you know, outside sort of thing. Um, because, yeah, there was just this huge shortage. And, and um, interestingly, through the project, I found out that um, my mum and her family lived in a military camp for a while after the war, um, you know, while, while they were waiting for public housing to be built. So it's sort of, that's one of my interests with squatting, uh, <laughs> was that there was this huge push in the 40s and a lot of the emergency housing that was won and things like military camps, which were still pretty rough places, but better than um, sleeping in the open or sleeping in a tent, um, that kind of emergency housing was won because there was this big squatting wave across Australia. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, since then, um, you know, there's been various ways of people doing it. Um, it's, I think, gotten more difficult in recent years because the nature of the sort of how, uh, the property that's being left empty is is harder to access. Mm, um, high rise you know. and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's sort of shifted. But, yeah, I mean, there's still lots of disused wasted property out there. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the group. There's an organisation in Melbourne that does a survey every few years and rather than using the census figures, what they use is um, the water. And if they, they sort of identify how many properties basically didn't use any water <laughs> in in the recent, you know, in the previous year and that's their basis of saying, well, it's a not being used if no water's being used. And yeah, yeah there's, there's just there's still thousands, tens of thousands of properties sitting empty. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Anyway, we will we'll move on. Could you introduce to us the Commons Social Change Library? Yeah, so the Commons has been running, oh gosh, uh, two or three years now. <laughs> and uh, what it is, is it's, it's a website, um, commonslibrary.org. And uh, yeah, it was a project um, started by Holly Hammond and um, a couple of others of us have come aboard and we've got a small small team but um, yeah basically it's it's a it, it is what it says on the label it's a social change library we now have I think about a thousand resources um, on the website and basically the, it's sort of educational resources in a range of different kind of formats for activists and campaigners 
to use and we kind of cover um, so it's very much a kind of focus on how to um, we do include some history stuff and we have you know dates and so forth but a lot of the history stuff is kind of more focused on I suppose uh, lessons and case studies um, but beyond that yeah it's kind of uh, I suppose yeah just about any aspect of campaigning and activism from sort of strategy and tactics and um, you know how to write a letter to a politician how to door knock um, through to kind of non-violent direct action and how to you know how to organize a blockade and different blockading tactics kind of more general theories of sort of social change and different ways to run organisations and structure organisations, uh, how, how do you facilitate meetings, make decisions, um, how do you look after yourself <laughs> while you're doing all this, um, you know. So, yeah, we, we just cover um, an enormous range um, of, yeah, of, of kind of advice and, and an educational materials about how to do uh, activism well, mm, yeah, yeah. So, why did you call it the Commons? Well, I think uh, so. Holly, Holly started and named it, but I guess it, it kind of um, ties into that idea of, I suppose, common knowledge, and uh, I guess it also ties into the, the traditional concept of the Commons. Um, being these were spaces that um, in feudal times um, before the sort of rise of industrialisation um, that any, you know, they were common spaces that anyone could grow food on, could, could hunt on, could, could share. And gradually um, the commons in Western countries was taken away from people which forced them more and more into, um, you know, reliance on uh, work and being exploited. So that's that's the classic idea of the commons, that we have these things that we should share in common for free and equally, and I guess that's, that's the idea with the library because there's no cost to use anything on the library. You know, we welcome donations and stuff from people, but, you know, it's all there for free and it's kind of we're trying to bring, I guess... Um, the knowledge of activists together in one place to be to be shared for free at, in common. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's I guess the the kind of concept um, behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've uh, we've actually got a, a listener question in. So uh, we'll just. Uh... Yeah, hi Ian. So we have quite a broad listening base and we actually have quite a few international listeners who tune in as well. And um, we've actually got a question come in from the UK for you, which I'm not surprised considering what's been going on there recently. Um, This comes from Joe in the UK. Um, I'm assuming Joe's a he, the way he spelt his name. So I'm not sure what part of the UK Joe's in, but he said, uh, what is the best advice personally that you have received to be a successful activist? Oh, I'm thinking Joe might be thinking of doing some protesting about what's happening in their government at the moment. Yeah, yeah, well, that's... that's, And they've got some pretty strict legislation that's just been enacted over there to actually prevent gathering and protesting, so it's becoming quite challenged to to express your opinion over there. Yeah, and I guess there's also um, 
a whole new wave of austerity about to break um, over there too. Look, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that straight off the, off the cuff because that's a pretty big um, question. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I suppose, um, oh, gosh, in terms of advice, well, you know, I, I would say um, I would certainly spruik the commons. That's a place to go um, to find out um, lots about lots of different campaigns uh, that people have run and the kind of knowledge that they've um, drawn out of it. Um, personally, I think probably some good advice to me was, I guess, to play the long game um, and to really sort of drill down to what your personal values are and um, to kind of use those uh, those values and the knowledge that, you know, Sometimes you can have quick wins, but but often it's yeah it's a long term process, and that kind of helps uh, has certainly helped me to kind of um, keep going over the years. So that's probably uh, unfortunately that's not a quick solution for uh, <laughs> government repression and and um, you know kind of capitalist austerity. Mm-hmm. But, um, but again, I would come back to um, yeah, check out check out the Commons, and um, there's a, there's a lot about, uh, and we are actually developing some stuff at the moment um, with um, some of the people from um, Melbourne Activist Legal Observer Group, uh, MELS, uh, looking at uh, there were some workshops run sort of recently about dealing with repression because obviously here uh, in Australia I mean we're seeing right now with uh, you know with the IMARC protests that um, in, in Sydney particularly you know people being jailed for, for um, NVDA and police being sent round to people in um, all sorts of states so there is this sort of push here in Australia towards kind of preemptive policing um, to pressure activists ahead of Campaigns. So there was a recent workshop, um, which we're hoping in the next sort of month or two to kind of bring out some new resources, kind of connected to that. And we've also got a um, page of resources to do with kind of jail solidarity and and arrest, uh, supporting arrestees and supporting people through um, that kind of process of. Um, being charged, potentially being jailed, being jailed. Um, so I'd encourage people, uh, you know, to check out that. And there's a case study in there from the last IMARC, IMARC being this big mining company conference, uh, which previously happened in Melbourne and now moved to Sydney. Um, and, yeah, a number of people were arrested at the blockade um, a couple of years ago in Melbourne, and there's a case study by Mel's on the um, Commons about uh, how that people sort of successfully uh, supported people because it's fantastic that people put themselves on the front line and and you know are in a position to to get arrested, but they also need to be supported through the 
the long and boring mm. stuff that follows. Yeah, it doesn't just end there, no. does it? Well, we've had no. activists on the show just talk about the arrest experience before and how all of the psychological games that the police will play to make the arrestees believe that they're alone and they've been abandoned by their companions. So I know that's probably the hardest part is a psychological battle afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been, I mean, I've been fortunate enough not to really go through that whole process of being sort of... Uh, detained on various occasions but for whatever reason the paddy wagon was full or they just let everyone go um, I haven't had to go through that but yeah um, you know which is why we sort of sort out um, case studies and stories from people who have so, so that people can kind of get their insights. Mm. You me- so you mentioned that um, you're doing workshops. So someone like Joe, who's in the UK, are those workshops going to be able for them to stream it um, live or to watch a replay of those workshops? Is there going to be recordings? Yeah, actually, sorry, um, we, we didn't um, run the workshop. It was um, by the Melbourne um, Activist uh, Legal Support Crew from MALS. Um I don't think it was recorded, but um, we've got a recording of a talk that was done on the topic of by one of the you know, people from that group. Um, so we're looking at putting that online, and yeah, we're just trying to yeah, we're looking at. I mean, the people who gave the talk, unfortunately, they're, they're all flat out now supporting the IMARC, <laughs> <laughs> the next IMARC. So I mean, this is always a bit of a challenge, and this is where we try to help people I guess because often um, people who are very deep into different kinds of activism you know it's hard for them to find the time to write up their experiences so that's one of the things that we try to uh, I suppose kind of facilitate through the commons and I should mention we've been running um, a series of um, workshops um, which have covered sort of um, different skills in terms of uh, creating um, resources. So, so we had one on how to write a book review. We had one on how to conduct interviews. Um, uh, one on making infographics, and one on um, how to write a campaign case study. And um, there are um, videos. And, and articles connected with all those and uh, just a little plug we've got one coming up on Wednesday the 23rd about how to report on conferences and other events so yeah one of our roles I guess is um, helping activists to skill up to document their own campaigns and other people's campaigns but we also help uh, with the documenting so um, yeah we didn't run that workshop but we are um, helping the people who did to produce some resources out of it. Fantastic. Um, but we already do have um, the, some resources on the, on mm. the website to mm. do with um, that stuff. Brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Well, I guess it's all about education, isn't it? And yeah. if you look through the history, education and self-education is a real tradition in movements of resistance. Can you give us some good examples of how groups in the past have, have self-educated themselves because um, we didn't always have the internet did we? No so yeah so I guess I mean one of the I'll, I'll sort of start out by saying I guess one of the weaknesses often um, particularly with social movements probably more than 
historically political parties uh, is that we do tend, and and this is as true of me as anyone, to sort of reinvent the wheel a bit. And they're often, um, I guess, since the 60s, there's a lot of movements, um, you know, maybe less so now, but certainly at times since the 60s being quite youth-oriented, there often were these kind of gaps. And so, um, you know, that's where I think, yeah, the role of kind of, ed- you know, basically education and having stuff about our history can help us kind of avoid making some of the kind of rookie errors <laughs> that that have been made uh, over and over again. And I think there's also often a tendency, and again, this has been certainly true for me, that we kind of get fixed on a certain way of doing things. And, and maybe that worked well once, or maybe, you know, somebody that we were inspired by you know whether historical movements or people that we knew did things that way and then then we always kind of apply the same tactics and so that's where education is really important because it gets us to think more broadly and i and i hope uh more strategically so historically um i mean there's always been an oral tradition i guess um you know of just people sharing stories and, you know, if sometimes that's been passed down through generations. Sometimes that's sort of shared around the campfire, you know, like at a, at a forest protest or something. And people are telling, you know, well, 10 years ago, you know, we did this. And, well, usually with some more outlandish story attached to it than, <laughs> than that. I mean, going right back, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you've you've got, you know, if you go back to the the sort of early 20th century, you had the whole sort of um, political self-education thing where, you know, libraries were very inaccessible, so so different sort of socialist and anarchist and other groups would set up their own libraries and news agents. Um, and then you had things like um, the Victorian Socialist Party, um, you know, they used to have their um, Socialist Sunday School as a kind of <laughs> alternative to the Christian you know, scene. Um, so certainly I think on the socialist side of things, there's probably often been a strong current around political education, um, but not always, I guess, you know, where, whereas that kind of got people a strong sense of history and ideology and, and analysis of the political situation. It didn't necessarily uh, always give people a lot of skills around um, how do you actually, like, sell a paper or or um, how do you, um, you know, win a union campaign or whatever. So, so historically, I think a lot of it has been very much sort of, you know, you're involved with the campaign, there's older people there, they kind of tell you how to do things. Uh, and that's that's a fantastic way to learn. Um, but it can, you know, unless you've got a big variety of people around you, you know, it can kind of narrow your influences. So that's where kind of reading more broadly and so forth really helps out. Mm, definitely. Um, so one of the big rookie errors, I guess, that you could wind up making is the... Uh the difference between strategy and tactics. Um, could you have a bit of a yarn about that one for us? Yeah, well, I guess tactics is sort of, you know, the tools that you use in the short term. 
<laughs> to, you know, uh, and they're the sort of things that can be picked up and put down, whereas the strategy is what's the, the big plan um, and the longer-term plan. And um, so, you know, we've got um, quite a few resources on strategy and we've got a topic guide on strategy, but typically strategy would sort of involve, um, you know, I guess the difference between just going in with tactics rather than a strategy would be, let you know, let's say something really horrible happens uh, and then you just sort of respond by having a protest or by, um, you know, occupying an office or something. Now, that, that that's an important way of showing opposition and so forth, um, but generally to kind of create longer and lasting change, you need a kind of longer-term plan. So not just, you know, that, that immediate reaction stuff is really important, um, but what do you do after that? And unfortunately, certainly a lot of things I've been involved in, we sort of had good tactics, but we either just sort of did something and then we didn't quite know what to do next, so we just kept doing the same thing until it sort of ran out of steam and nobody cared and everyone got tired. <laughs> so strategy is having that longer-term kind of plan, and I guess part of that, you know, there's a whole lot of tools that can be used within that longer-term plan, and part of it is kind of analysing what sort of context you're in, you know, who are your potential allies, who are your opponents, who are kind of in the middle, who can you win over, Um, you know, there's often this kind of concept of um, sort of, um, you know, pillars of support, so, so... what, you, what who are your opponents relying on and ha- and what are they relying on and how can you kind of knock out those pillars of support, the things that keep them going? Um, so you sort of get a big picture. You know, I guess that's the idea of strategy. Work out what, what do we need to change along the way in order to kind of achieve our big goal mm. and what are the different things we might have to react to along the way and then ideally... That's you then choose your tactics on that basis. So this tactic will have the most impact here, but, you know, okay, that tactic's starting not to work so well, let's switch to another tactic. Or let's use a range of tactics, so, you know, this tactic will work the best here and then this tactic will work, will work better there. Um, yeah, so, so often I think, um, you know, as activists, we, we're very wedded particular tactics, um, you know, for various reasons that I talked about before. So really using strategy is is getting away from always applying the same uh, means over and over again (laughs) and actually looking at the situation a bit more to go, okay, what's going to be most effective in this situation? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do we need to start? How can we grow things, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's a bit about recruitment too, in a way too. And so, tell us about Gene Sharp's list of tactics. I mean, people could certainly get some good ideas from that. Yeah, so Gene Sharp um, <clears throat> is a yeah, was um, a non-violence um, 
I guess, well, non-violence practitioner, but also um, somebody who studied the history of non-violence very closely. And he was very interested in using non-violence <clears throat> in, a, in a more strategic way rather than, um, I suppose, coming from a more ideological place of sort of saying, well, we must be non-violent and so we can only do these things. He was sort of more interested in does non is non-violence actually effective and how can it be effective, if that sort of makes sense. So mm-hmm. we don't do it because morally we're, we're in forced to do it, even though, you know, I don't think he was an unethical <laughs> person, but he was interested in, you know, what's the effectiveness of it. So, yeah, he wrote a number of um, books, but... Um, one of the volumes of, I can't remember his key work right now, um, basically lists, um, I think it's 189 or something, <laughs> some, <laughs> some huge number of different nonviolent tactics. So, yeah, I mean, if you're ever involved in a campaign and you're a bit sort of stuck for like, okay, you know... What can we do? <laughs> what do we do next? <laughs> then, um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a huge uh, list of things. And, yeah, it goes into a bit of detail and examples of each one. Um, and that's something that was, was written, um, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s. So it's not a new resource by any means but it's still one that um just by sheer breadth um you know it's still really useful i think for people today yeah and i'd have to recommend that uh, the old how to make travel and influence people too it's a compilation of various pranks and actions that people have played over the years that you put together that's uh... yeah thanks yeah there's all sorts of things in there that can be repurposed and that's something that i often try and remind people about like um it's important to be to always be looking for kind of fresh angles and and new ways of doing things but sometimes a new way of doing things is actually plucking something from the past you know and and repurposing it so i mean we see this a lot with kind of different free speech campaigns uh, over you know which has been sort of recurring theme in australia politics of kind of um you know people trying to street speak or or protest in public and that being repressed and and yeah there's some there's some great tactics that people used you know way back in the 1910s and 1920s um that people have kind of come up with inadvertently (laughs) similar versions of later on so um yeah um there's a lot we can sort of repurpose from the past i think don't we don't always have to come up with something brand new yeah that's right now does the commons library get beyond just naming the problems and figuring out how to stop stuff is, is there a section on uh, on some of the solutions and, and the great things that we could do to to solve the problems i guess rather than just begging the boss to stop doing them yeah so, um, yeah, we've definitely got sections on sort of theories of change um, and sort of social change more broadly. So it's it's certainly not all oppositional. Um, yeah, there is stuff about, well, you know, how do we go towards building uh, a different kind of world uh, while we're doing this campaigning? And, of course, campaigning isn't always around... Um, sort of oppositional stuff either it can be also saying okay well we we want funding 
for this because it's going to improve things in this way? Or how do we, um, yeah, we do have some stuff that, as I say, sort of looks at theories of change. So how do we, how do we shift um, the bigger picture um, so that we're not just, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, uh, so that we're not just always fighting these little battles? You know, how do, how do we shift society more broadly so that people are kind of empowered so that uh, people have more power? So I guess um, the, if, if you're going to have a movement, you're going to try and empower people and, and keep people going and ticking over for the long term, you've really got to sort of create your own culture within that. And I guess the, the example of that that I've seen that really struck out most to me is the industrial workers of the world or the Wobblies over in the US sort of well, 100 years ago now. Can you tell us a bit about some of the things that they did to maintain the, I guess, their self-education, their spirit, and and their fight over that time? They, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Colin. Oh, I was just going to say they they copped it pretty bad. Yes. Yes. So the <clears throat> industrial workers of the world were um, a, a radical syndicalist union um, that started in the early twentieth century. Um, they tried to, their goal was to sort of bring workers of all types, um, which included trades, ethnicities, languages, gender, um, into one big union. And then that big union, eventually the goal was would, would basically uh, have a big general strike and take over society and sort of get rid of politicians and hierarchy and, <clears throat> and bosses and, and, and all that. So they were um, quite big in certain industries, um, <clears throat> so particularly around sort of um, uh, migratory workers, so workers who would sort of, you know, pick, pick the cotton or, you know, sort of move from one area to another as, as required. They're also quite big in certain sort of um, factories, um, towns and so forth. And they were very heavily repressed both by more conservative unions um, and by sort of governments and police to the point where, where hundreds of um, wobblies were were killed and thousands uh, were arrested. And one of the things that, yes, as, as you mentioned, that really kept them going was they had a very strong internal culture. And uh, a big part of that was um, music, humour. Um, they had, um, you know, sort of spaces in lots of towns. So, um, you know, if, if there was a wobbly chapter, typically, you know, they would hire a storefront have a small library and, you know, then their members could meet there and kind of hang out. And a lot of their members were the sort of poorest workers as well. So um, that kind of union meeting place was also a place where, you know, they could sort of share info about, you know, where is their work, you know, who are the dodgiest bosses, <laughs> how are you going to deal with them, that sort of thing. So, yeah, they, they really gave life to a very vibrant, particularly musical culture so um you know the most famous singer i guess being joe hill who was who was um murdered by authorities in in utah um 
And, um, yeah, so I think, yeah, cultures are really, you know, they, they're an example of that really helped having that strong kind of solidarity but also having that shared music. Um, cartoons were a really big part of their thing and kind of having a really good kind of sense of humour uh, helped get them through a lot of um, <clears throat> repressive times. So, yeah, I think uh, sort of, yeah, cultural activism and creativity and all that stuff's really important. Just to plug the commons again, <laughs> we've sort of got, uh, you know, some sections on the website about, um, I guess, using art and music and creativity in a range of ways, um, partially to kind of foster that sense of collectivity, but, but also, you know, for things like fundraising and, and outreach and, and fun. Yeah, yeah, nice one. Getting some weird feedback in here today. I'm not sure what's going on, but uh... the joys of joys of radio. Oh yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what are some of the ways to avoid oh, burnout? Yeah, I think you've, we've already answered that one, haven't we? Um, yeah, if there's anything you want to add on that one, feel free. Um, look, at, yeah, it's a really hard. Thing when when you're involved with campaigning, I mean, you often are putting, you know, I mean, whether you have a choice or not depends, I guess, on <clears throat> on your background and, and where you sit in society. But whether you're doing it by choice or whether you're doing it because you have to, mm. you are kind of dealing with with the crappy end of life. <laughs> you know, you try to overcome that. Um, so yeah, I mean there are a lot of risks to your to your mental and physical health, and it's very easy to become um, to be ground down. So um, yeah, it's really important to to look after yourself. So so again, plugging the comments, we've got a section on sort of well-being where different people share how how they kind of you know not just coping strategies, I guess, but um, you know how to how to live your best life I suppose um, and again as you know that some of that is um, sort of I guess individually looking after yourself but as you as you know we just talked about it's also having this kind of having a community building community um, so it goes I guess the sort of stuff that we try to cover does talk about individual solutions but that generally try to go beyond that kind of typical wellness industry type stuff to sort of say, well, yeah, it's also about building a different world and uh, in the now and uh, looking after one another and, and kind of holding each other up. Mm, having a strong community, yeah. Um, yeah, what's, what's your favourite political prank that you've come across? <laughs> <laughs> We've got all the biggest questions today. <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, just just immediate thing that springs to mind is is the bugger up campaign. Oh, yeah. um, just just for sheer um, kind of uh, tenacity and and scale. Mm, what was it? Um, Billboard utilizing graffiti artists or something? Yeah. I've, I've, uh, Billboard utilising graffitiists against unhealthy promotions. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
So, yeah, Bugger Up ran from the late 70s to the 90s and basically it was a graffiti, mass graffiti campaign. But they did other things as well, but it was basically targeting the tobacco industry um, and, I guess, advertising industry in general. And it was a very um, loose network of people. A lot of it happened in, in Sydney, but it also happened in other parts of Australia. And people would just go out regularly and kind of, well, deface isn't the right word. I was going to say deface billboards. They would would modify billboards. And, um, but they also did other things like they would sort of turn up to, um, you know, Tobacco industry was using sports a lot, as, as, as a lot of people would know, and so they would turn up to these sort of different sporting promotional events and, and kind of do funny stunts. And um, there's some great footage on YouTube of sort of this um, character of death sort of wandering around this <laughs> uh, Formula One sports car in a mall sort of dropping ash from a cigarette <laughs> all over it and stuff. But yeah, literally they did hundreds if not thousands of, of billboards and the thing was they often used quite um, funny slogans to, to redo those billboards and it was a really successful campaign. Um, there was an interview in, in How to Make Trouble and Influence People's sort of collected edition but it's also on the Commons um and there's been um so there's some other articles on the commons about them as well but yeah it was it was quite interesting because they the people involved were initially running um quite a quite a straightforward normal kind of lobbying campaign it wasn't getting anywhere and then some people went oh let's just start you know stuffing up these billboards and then it just kind of took off and and it is sort of um, this campaign of sort of mass graffiti and mass piss-taking actually had quite a big... I mean, it cost the advertisers lots of money because they had to pull them down all the time, but it also did a lot... It really changed the narrative, helped change the narrative around tobacco and um, it's kind of, I guess, probably the forgotten outside of progressive circles to a degree now, but, you know, um, quite widely recognised in health circles that... that this kind of radical education campaign, you know, really, really made a big difference and forced the tobacco industry out of sport. Mm, yeah, nice one. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to add? We're just about out of time and we've got a, got a couple of short announcements to make. No worries. Well, look, um, just, yeah, come and visit the Commons Library <laughs> at commonslibrary.org. Um, thanks heaps for having me on the show and, um, yeah, keep up the great work. Um, it's fantastic that there's so much great community radio out there covering, um, you know, kind of political issues and what to do about them. Yeah, nice one. Well, thanks for all of your work and, uh, yeah, more power to your arm. You too. Cheers, and that was Ian McIntyre from the Commons Social Change Library. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system 
so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.